Well, this morning, church, we now continue our series going verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And last week, uh, as you might know, we began chapter 2, and we talked about humility. And now this week, we pick up where we just read in verse 6 of chapter 2 as well. And if you look at your Bibles, and again, I do encourage you to follow along, you'll see that we are starting in verse 6 here in the middle of a sentence. Our first verse starts with the word, who. And that's because we ended last week with verse 5. And if you remember there, we talked mostly about humility. And the Bible says, quote, to have this mind, this mindset of humility among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we saw that what the Bible's really saying here is that we're to be humble, a humble people, but then also that that humility we need is ours in Christ Jesus. Meaning we're not just to follow Jesus as our example of humility, but even more than that, we're to look at him as the ultimate humble one and know that being in him means that we really can become more humble. Take us to this week. So that's verse 5. But now we start again in verse 6, and our paragraph goes through verse 11. And here you're going to see that the Bible focus, focuses all on Jesus himself. And in this paragraph we have which, what is one of the greatest paragraphs in the whole entire Bible. And I really mean that. This is one of the greatest paragraphs in the whole entire Bible. And perhaps you're seeing why in the scripture reading yourself. To begin, this passage that we're about to cover is perhaps one of the most concise explanations of who Jesus is, what he did, and the future of our world, all in one little paragraph. And so we get a great amount of information here about who the Lord is, about what's going on in the world, and what's going to happen in the future. But along with this, this paragraph, as you might have noticed, not only gives us a lot of information, but it's also said in a really beautiful way. And this is because, in the original language, this paragraph is clearly a hymn, or a poem, or a song. In fact, almost all scholars agree that this was an early hymn of Christianity. And we know this because of, as one scholar quote it, quote, put it, quote, the ring of the words, the way in which the sentences are constructed, and the rhythm, rhythmic cadence of the lines. And you can feel that poeticness even in English as well, right? You can see it's written in stanzas, it goes line by line, and there's a certain poetic flow to it. And it's one of the reasons why this passage is so beautiful to us. So the paragraph not only has a lot of information, but it's also said in a beautiful way. And then finally, this is one of the greatest paragraphs in the Bible because this is one of the earliest Christian creeds we have. In other words, what's really going on here is this paragraph is most likely something that Paul decided to use, didn't make up, but he decided to use because this was a creed, a belief that he knew the Philippians probably already knew themselves. And by creed, I just simply mean something that the very, very early Christians believed to be true. And we'll come back to this idea throughout our time this morning, but this means that here in this paragraph, we get to see what did the very early Christians believe about Jesus. And so all that said, taken together, this is an important and significant paragraph here in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It's informative, it's beautiful, and it's one of the earliest things we have in the New Testament. And being such a significant paragraph, we're actually going to cover it in two weeks instead of one week. 
and you can see this because the reason we do this also is because you can see that the hymn itself is split into two different sections or stanzas, just naturally. First is verses 6 through 8, which deal with the humility of Jesus. Second in verses 9 through 11, which deal with the exaltation of Jesus. And so this week we're going to cover the first half about his humility, and next week we'll cover the second half about his exaltation. Which brings us to these three verses, verses 6 through 8, about the humility of Jesus. There's a lot here. We're going to go verse by verse as usual this morning. But to see it most clearly, we are going to ask three questions about Jesus this morning. And we'll reveal those questions as we go, actually, instead of all at first. But we're going to do three questions. That's going to be our outline. And as always, as we go, we're going to see how this applies to us as well. So to start, we're going to begin by asking our first question. This is the most basic question of all. But one which we'll see the, early, the very early church had a profound answer to. And that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I know it's simple, but notice what the poem has to say right away about our Savior. And for this, we're going to read verse 5 again from last week, but then we're just going to read verse 6 along with it. So look down at your Bibles. We're going to do that now, verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So to begin, just quickly notice verse 5. This is how Paul introduces Jesus. He's writing this now, and he says he is Christ Jesus. And this really is, I point that out, this is the basic answer to who is Jesus. This is what the very early church taught about Jesus right away, that he's the Christ, which just means he's the Messiah, the, the king, the ruler. And then second, his name is Jesus, which in the original Hebrew just meant God saves. But that then leads us to really see who they believe this Messiah actually was in verse 6. And this is significant because remember, in the Old Testament, it was a little, a little cloudy on who the Messiah would be. Most Jewish people, taking the Old Testament, concluded that he'd probably just be some earthly king who'd be with, endowed with God's power so that he'd restore the nation of Israel. But who actually was the Messiah, the Christ? Verse 6, see it for yourself. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And so that's the first thing. Apparently, this Messiah was, quote, in the form of God before he came to earth. And honestly, at first glance, if we weren't used to hearing this, this is kind of surprising. And that's because that Greek word there, form, was a significant word. It's only used here and in the next verse in the whole New Testament, but it can really mean only two things. First, it can mean the essential attributes of something. So that would be the form of God means whatever it means for God to be God. But then second, this word form also could mean the external form of something, meaning just what it means for God to look like God. First would be a little more philosophical. The second would be just this is what God looks like. So which is it? What does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God? Well, two things in our paragraph tip us off to what the early Christians meant by this. First, as we probably know, God in the Old Testament believed didn't have external looks. We know that. He, wasn't an ex he didn't have external looks. So almost certainly Jesus didn't have the form of God like that. But then second, and more important, notice how the text actually tells us 
what the, the poem means by this, because in a parallel line, the next line, it gives us crystal clarity what the form of God means. Notice, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped or to hold on to. In other words, very clearly here, in the way it's written in a poem, to be in the form of God is parallel with to be equal with God. Again, we'll come back to what it means to be grasped. Again, a better translation is probably to be held onto. But either way, when you read this slowly, the point is clear. Who is Jesus? Jesus is in the form of God, meaning he has the essential attributes of God. He has the form of what it means for God to be God. Or to say another way, he is equal with God. And if we know our Old Testaments at all, we know that God is very clear, right, in the Ten Commandments and throughout the whole rest of the New Testament that no one is equal to him. Right? He doesn't share his glory with anyone else, and yet here we are. This Messiah, Jesus, he is equal with God. He has God's godness. He's in the form of God. And so that's really the very first thing the hymn teaches us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is truly God. Right? There's no other way about it. That's what the hymn says. Yes, in a poetic way, using phrases like the form of God, but make, make no mistake about it. Jesus was, and he still is, God. And to apply this to ourselves, I just want to take a second and apply this sort of as a proof of the truthfulness of Christianity for us. Because we live in a time where people do try to say in different clever ways that the early church didn't believe that Jesus was God. Right? Just watch some TV channels or, or read certain books and you'll see them trying to twist history to show that they thought the early church didn't believe that Jesus was God. And to be honest, I don't know if you knew this, I got a biblical studies, that was my college degree, from a university where none of my Bible teachers believed in the inerrancy or perfection of Scripture. And some of my Bible teachers even believed that Christianity was a myth, and they believe that Jesus wasn't seen to be God in the early church. So I've seen this side before, and I'm sure maybe you have too, in certain books that you can see or certain shows on TV. But here's the truth. The early church did believe Jesus was God. Amen. It did. Amen. It wasn't something they made up to gain control of the Roman Empire. Remember, they were persecuted for 300 years, and that doesn't work. And neither was it something they started to believe decades and decades and decades after Jesus. Not at all. Because again, here in this text, we have probably one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church that might predate almost everything in the New Testament. And this is what they believed right away. And what did it include? That as confusing as it might sound to us, Jesus of Nazareth was truly God himself. And so if you are a Christian out here this morning, brothers and sisters, I just encourage you to know that your faith in the deity of Christ stands firm. Amen. And if you're out there this morning and, and, and perhaps you're not a Christian, I do encourage you to maybe reconsider trusting in Jesus for the first time this morning because this was one of the earliest beliefs of the Christian church. And why? Well, because this man appeared in Palestine. He claimed to be God. He started doing all these miracles. He said he'd die and rise, and then he actually did it. And so it was clear to them, and it's still true today, he was and he is God. But that now leads us to our second question. It'll also be a little simple, but here's where our text gets more specific. And for this, we'll ask, okay, so he's God. 
that's quite amazing in itself, but what did he do? What did he do? And for this, we're going to read all of verses 6 through 8 again. So look down at your Bibles, verses 6 through 8. We're asking, what did he do? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there's a lot here, but when you boil it down, you can see that the Bible gives us something he didn't do, and then a few things he did do. As for the thing he didn't do, notice again the end of verse 6. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And at first it sounds a bit strange. What could this mean? Well, it basically seems to mean that he didn't hold on to. He didn't grasp tightly and not let go of his exaltation. And this makes the most sense of the paragraph. So Jesus is God himself. He has equality with God, but the text is saying he didn't hold on to that tightly just for himself, for his own advantage. And in this way, you can see that this phrase here is perhaps the best example in the paragraph of just the selflessness of Christ. Because essentially, it's saying that he didn't act selfishly, just holding on to the glory and exaltation he had instead he humbly and selflessly loved. He became a human for us. Which brings us then to what Jesus did do in the text. And this is expressed in multiple ways in the text, but it's all kind of saying one major thing. And to see this, notice how the poem is set up here. You've probably analyzed other poems before. Notice how the poem is set up here. Because notice there's only really two regular verbs in verses 7 and 8. Both of which are past tense verbs. And then there's four ing verbs that explain those two verbs. I know it sounds confusing, but I think you can see it for yourself. The two main verbs, you see, are emptied and humbled. Verse 7, he emptied himself. Verse 8, he humbled himself. And then there's four ing verbs that explain those verbs, right? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you can see how this is poetic, and it's intentionally structured, and through all these, we can see what he did do. So let's begin with those two verbs. He emptied, and he humbled himself. And this is especially important to note, because these honestly can so easily be, and often have been, really misunderstood. Because on this specifically, there once was a trend, a really popular trend in more progressive biblical scholarship that took an idea from right here and ran with it. And I mention it because it became so prominent that I'd guess that you've probably heard an iteration of it yourself. And it's the idea that when Jesus became a human being, he emptied himself of his divinity. Or that when Jesus became a human being, he emptied himself of certain attributes of God. And the verse that people use to primarily support this was verse 7 here. Because here Jesus is God, and then as you see, he empties himself. He humbles himself, and so it was assumed that when Jesus was a human, he wasn't truly or fully God, because he emptied himself of his godness. And this, if you're interested, became known as the kenotic theory, if you want to look into it more because of the Greek word here. And although it might sound plausible maybe at first, Without going too much into it, I just want to let you know that the Bible nowhere teaches us. It just doesn't. 
It is true that Jesus was 100% human. And with that came things that we've all experienced, like tiredness, like genuine questions. And even concerning the date of his return, he didn't know when that would be. So we can say that he was genuinely human. But what isn't true is that the Bible teaches anywhere that Jesus emptied himself of divinity. Instead, the opposite is the case. The gospel writers recounting his life are always cleverly showing that Jesus was God himself and could, all, and could do God-like things because he had the attributes of God. Right? For example, Jesus is all-powerful and has control over creation like when he's out in a boat and he stops the wind and the waves in a moment. Or even more God-like, think about how he created out of nothing ex nihilo, probably when he transformed just a, a, a basket of fish and loaves and he fed 5,000 people with it. Right? That's creating out of nothing. And then also we know right in the Bible that he can forgive sins and that when he says, I am, sometimes people fall down. And so Jesus is clearly God. Right? He has the attributes of God when he walked on this earth. But maybe an even better answer to this idea is in verse 7 itself. And you can see it. Notice, Paul and the early Christians don't leave this idea of emptied and humbled without explanation. Instead, there's a direct object to the verb there, right? He emptied himself. He humbled himself. That's clear. So he doesn't empty himself of divinity. No, he just empties himself, humbles himself. One commentator helpfully said it this way, and I hope it helps. He says, it has been assumed that the verb here requires a qualifier, that Jesus must have emptied himself of something. But that is precisely not keeping in with the Bible's usage. Christ did not empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself, poured himself out. And that's the point here. Who was Jesus? He was God. And what did he do? Well, first, he emptied himself. He humbled himself, meaning, it's an idiom, he poured himself out for us. He didn't empty himself of divinity. The Bible doesn't say that. Instead, the text is saying that he just poured himself out for our sake. Which brings us back to those four ing verbs that explain what this looked like. So he emptied himself and humbled himself, but what does this mean? Well, let's quickly take a look at each one of those four phrases one by one. Look down at your Bibles first, quickly. Verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. So our God really became a servant. And that's the same word form there as the previous verse. So now he has the essential attributes of God, and he also has the essential attributes of a servant. Which, since he's God, is stunning that now he's a servant. Second, verse 7 again, being born in the likeness of men. So here we have a poetic way of saying that he became like us. And we know from page one of the Bible, right, that we are made in the image of God, that we are like God. But now, amazingly, for us and our salvation, our God became like us. And also reference here is his birth. He became like us by being born, right? This is a reference now to the Christmas story. Third, verse eight, being found in human form. This most basically means he was found by us as a human, a real, genuine, flesh and blood, 100% human. And then fourth and finally, verse 8 again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
We'll look more into this in a second, but for our purposes now, notice that part of his being human was, quote, becoming obedient. And here, even the Trinity is implied because he's obeying the Father's plan to go to the cross. So now with all those verses covered, we can now answer our question, what did he do? Well, first, he wasn't selfish. Instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He poured himself out. What does this mean? Well, in essence, it means that the almighty, exalted God became a genuine human being, even a servant, even to the point of death. And this means that this also is part of the very early Christian belief. And it's so simple. We've heard it before, but it's also so helpful. And that's that they really believed, and we should too, that Jesus, being truly God, also was one of us. He's like us. And notice how emphatic that is in the hymn. Right? Well, while his being God only accounts for one or two lines, him becoming one of us is explained over and over and over. And I think that's because, in some ways, if we're honest, this might be even harder for us to believe. Because it's one thing to believe in God. But honestly, most people throughout history have believed in God. And in fact, statistically right now, atheism only accounts for 7% of the whole world population. And even in America, atheism only accounts for 3% of America's population. And if you add agnosticism to that, it's at 7%. That's it. So honestly, most people have believed in God. The bigger questions are, but who is God? And, and, and could God really relate to lowly people like us? And it's to these questions that the early church answered right away, Jesus is God, and he not only relates to lowly people like us, but he truly became one of us. He was born. He was like us, perfect, but still like us. And not only that, amazingly, he became a servant for us. And the reason that matters for us this morning is this means that he not only can save us, but he also knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be tired, to be hungry, to ask questions, to be tempted. And as we just saw, he also knows what it's like even to die. And so when you're praying to God, when you as a Christian are reading his word, and you're just trying to love him and obey him and live for his glory, you can know that you are not living for some God who's far off. You know, we don't worship some all-powerful one who has little connection with us tiny human beings. Not at all. Instead, he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust, right, as the Bible says. And amazingly, he became part of this dust for us. Which leads now to our third and final question. So we asked, who is Jesus? And then we asked, what did he do? But now third, I want to focus on those two last lines of the stanza here because they're meant to be emphatic. And remember, this is all about the humility of Jesus, the lowliness of Jesus. And so for this last question, we'll now ask, and how low did he go? How low did he go? Meaning, okay, God became a human like us, even a servant, but how low did he go? And you know the answer. Right? It's there in verse 8, but let's read it together again. Look down at your Bibles, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so how low did he go? To the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's how the first stanza here ends. And although we may know this to be true, I want us to really get what this is saying and why I think this was part of how the early church put it. And to do this, let's just quickly take each of those phrases. First, how low did he go? The text says, to the point of death, meaning he died. And now taking the whole biblical storyline into account, this is also somewhat shocking. I know we know this, but this is also somewhat shocking. So God becomes a human being. But surely he won't die. <laughs> because remember, from page from Genesis 3, almost page 1 in our Bibles, death is part of a curse. So even if God were to become a human being, he'd be a perfect human being, just like Jesus was. So he doesn't need to die in his sins. So why would he die? Well, this shows us that something more is going on here, isn't it? And we know what that is. He died in his people's place. Now, he, didn't, he didn't deserve to die. He was the perfect human. But he died for us. So that's the first thing. How low did he go? He died. But as we know, our stanza does not end there. Poetically, it ends with, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so why is this added? Well, think about why the early Christians would include this. Right, we could easily say, well, because it's part of the gospel, and yes, it is, but right, even when we sometimes summarize the gospel, we just say Jesus died for sins, and we often don't mention the cross. So why is the mention of the cross here? Why does it say that he died on a cross? Well, to begin physically, as I'm sure we all know, dying on a cross was one of the worst ways a human being could die. And so, if you're following the text, to say that God, Almighty God, humbled himself to the point of that is amazing. The flogging he experienced beforehand, the nails pierced through his hands and his feet, and then being hung there, suffocating, struggling for every single breath while he's the one who created the world and sustains the entire world is incredible. And so the cross is mentioned here because it was a horrendous, torturous way to die, and yet our God humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But that's only half the story of the cross. And honestly, I think it's the smaller half. That's the physical side of the cross he experienced. And it was horrible and excruciating, right? That's what that word original means. But there's another side of the cross too. And I think that even more so, this is why the detail of the cross <coughs> is added here. Because when we say Jesus died on a cross, now we're getting really to the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because yes, Jesus died, we know that, but he didn't just die. He died on a cross. And what this meant for the early Christians, and what it still means for us today, is one, this means he was condemned as a criminal, as a Roman criminal. And the cross tells us that he was condemned. And then second, it means that he was hung on a tree, which in the Old Testament from God himself means that he was cursed. The cross tells us that as well. And so both of these ideas, being condemned and being cursed, 
are included in that idea of the cross as well. It's not just that he went through awful pain of Roman crucifixion, although he did, and it was horrible. It's also that we know this death on the cross means that he was condemned and cursed for us. And that then brings us to the answer, the ultimate answer to our question we're asking, and how low did he go? Because now with verses 6 through 8 explained, we now can finally see the intentional overall flow of this stanza. It's purposeful. It, begun, it begins with Christ Jesus being in the form of God. Right? He's God himself. And then he didn't selfishly hold on to that exaltation. Instead, he became a genuine human being. He was born like us. And then not only that, but it says that he became a servant. And so he didn't walk around in the pomp like a king or like the God that he was. Instead, he was a servant. And then it goes even lower. He died, which is shocking, that he would die. And then finally, lowest of lows, he died on a cross. A Roman torture device, a monstrous way to die, and even more so, condemned and cursed for us. That's how low he went, from being enthroned, exalted as God to the lowest of lows, tortured and condemned on a cross. And this is why some people have called this, what's going on here, the infinite stoop of Christ, which is a strange word, the infinite stoop of Christ, or a better word might be the infinite coming down or lowering of Christ. Or speaking of humility, we might even call this the infinite humility of Christ, as I did in the title of the message. Whatever word you decide to use, it's the idea that's profound. Because what we see here in Philippians 2, 6 through 8 is literally an infinite lowering of himself. And I don't use that word infinite lightly. Literally infinite, because God is infinite in his glory and his exaltation. And yet the text is saying that he not only left that exaltation, but he was born. He not only was born, he became a servant. Not only was he a servant, he died. And not only that, he died on a cross tortured, condemned, cursed in our place. So the picture is clear. How low did he go from infinite height to incredible depths? And again, I emphasize that he did this, brothers and sisters, for us. This is the ultimate infinite humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the one who died for us, and he's the one we give our lives to and we trust. So that's our text. In summary, who is Jesus? He's God himself. What did he do? He didn't selfishly hold on to the exaltation. He became a genuine human being, a servant. And finally, how low did he go? To death, even death on a cross. That's what our hymn says here, even in just those short three verses. And again, this is what our early, very early brothers and sisters in Christ believed, and Jesus' church has believed it because it's true for 2,000 years. So now as we close, I just encourage us to leave here this morning as God's people, as Jesus' people, and really believe these things about Jesus. I really believe them about our God, like our early brothers and sisters did 2,000 years ago. And then, because we really believe it to be reality and true, to then go out and really live for Him. Because brothers and sisters, if He did this, which He did, then He is worthy of loving of living for, and not only that, but he is worthy on relying on to make us more humble. Because remember, that's the context of Philippians 2 here. 
what we see here is Jesus's infinite humility. And once again, what the Bible is saying is that this Jesus is the one that we're connected to in, in union with now that we're saved. And the humility that we need is ours in Christ Jesus. So may we leave here today trusting and loving and living humbly for this creator God of ours who is in the form of God, but he became a servant, left his throne, died, died on a cross for sinners like you and me. What a great and gracious God we have. And then next week, I encourage you to come back because we will finish the stanza and the poem because as we know, he didn't remain dead. Instead, God exalted him, and as the text says, one day he's going to come back, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. 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 Let's pray.